This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book as a PDF. Through New Eyes Developing a Biblical View of the World James B. Jordan Copyright 1988 Published by Wolgamoth and Hyatt Brentwood, Tennessee Part 1 The Nature of the World It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. Proverbs 25, verse 2 1. Interpreting the World Design What do we see when we go outside and look at the world? Has it become so familiar to us that we pay no attention to it at all? Or perhaps when we look at the blue sky, do we think of the refraction of light? When we notice the sun, do we think of a nuclear furnace? When we see a fox in a zoo, do we think of what we learn in biology class about its bones and organs? And beyond this, when we step back and view the world, how do we see it? Blue sky, green fields, brown earth, blue water. Does this set of images mean anything at all, or is it just the way things are? How do we view the world? The Bible is concerned to give us a basic world view model and begins with it right away. The first chapter of Genesis tells us about the design of the world as it came from the hand of the designer. There is a separation of light and darkness. There is a blue sky as a sailing over the earth, a sky that becomes black and filled with stars at night. There is a separation between land and sea. Moreover, there are creatures apportioned to each of these environments, lights and birds for the sky, beasts and creeping things for the earth, fish and great monsters for seas. And over them all, yet under God, is man himself, the captain of creation. In this chapter, we want to start becoming familiar with the nature of this worldview grid. The Six Days of Genesis 1 From time to time, in the history of the church, the interpretation of Genesis 1 has been obscured by a tendency to read it in terms of current science. Bringing a scientific worldview to Genesis 1 has resulted in two errors. One is to take the chapter literally, but try to interpret what it says in terms of scientific categories. This tendency appears in the Hexmeron of St. Basil the Great, 330-79. Basil takes Genesis 1 as it stands, but constantly tries to integrate it with the earth, air, fire, water science of his day. The opposite tendency appears in St. Augustine's literal meaning of Genesis. Since Genesis 1 does not always seem to square with the scientific and philosophical understanding of the world, Augustine tends to take it allegorically. Both approaches have modern advocates, though the science has changed. While it is not the purpose of this book to discuss the chronology of the Bible or the ins and outs of creation in six days, it will be helpful if I declare my own position. I am personally persuaded of recent creation and in six 24-hour days, as the scriptures set it out. God did not have to build the world in six days. He could have spoken it fully developed existence instantly. The Bible states that God developed the creation over a six-day span of time, and it is very difficult to figure out a way to evade the force of this. Scripture elsewhere affirms the simple fact of six-day creation, Exodus 20, verse 11, and nowhere provides any evidence to support a purely symbolic view of the text. The motive for escaping biblical chronology and six-day creationism 
is the honorable desire to make the faith relevant and credible to its intellectual despisers. Some good men feel that there is no way to reconcile a literal interpretation of Genesis with the certainties of modern science. Those who know the history of science, however, will not be so sure of these certainties. We gain no intellectual credibility by using dodges that don't work. Moses, educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, Acts 7 verse 22, which was thoroughly evolutionary in its commitment to a scale of being philosophy, was doubtless as surprised at Genesis 1 as any modern philosopher would be. No impersonal forces here, no gradual shades of being from animals to man with all sorts of things, satyrs, sphinxes, etc., in between. No huge cycles of time, just a series of immediate personal acts in a brief span of time, initiating linear time. This was not what Moses had been taught by his Egyptian tutors. Six days meant then what it means now. The text even tells us that God defined the meaning of the term, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Genesis 1 verse 5. Day is light time. That is its fundamental meaning. The use of the word day for the whole 24-hour period, see the second half of verse 5, is an extended meaning and shows that day, or light, is the more basic component of the period. The 24-hour day begins in dark and moves eschatologically to light, or day. Moreover, the use of day for an age or eon of time is also an extended meaning. Some have argued that the first three days might have been longer than 24 hours, since the sun was not made to measure days until the fourth day. This, however, puts the cart before the horse. The day as a period of time already existed, and the sun was made to fit it. The book of Revelation shows us that even after the sun is gone, the daylight of God's glory will continue to shine. Revelation 22 verse 5 Another alternative is the framework hypothesis. Some have called attention to the structure of the six days as six panels in a larger picture. They argue that the days are not spans of time, but only a literary convention for presenting a sixfold creation. The fundamental problem with this view is that it needlessly opposes a theological interpretation to a literal one. The observations about the interrelationships among the six panels or days are valid, but that does not change the fact that the Bible presents the events as taking place over the course of a normal week. If we allow this kind of interpretive procedure, we can get into real trouble. Shall we deny the physical resurrection of Christ just because we have come to understand its theological meaning? We dare not pit the historical aspects against the theological aspect. Moreover, and to me this is the important point, the theological dimension of creation in six days lies precisely in its being a temporal sequence, as we shall see in chapter 10 of this book. God had no reason to make the world in six days except as a pattern for his image, man, to follow. Where the Bible later uses a three-day or six-day or seven-day pattern theologically, it is always in terms of the flow of time from a beginning to an end. The framework hypothesis platonizes the time sequence into a mere set of ideas. In its attempt to be theological, the framework hypothesis misses the whole theological point. The Language of Visual Appearance Genesis 1 is written in terms of visual appearances, 
not in terms of scientific analysis. Genesis 1 speaks of lights in the sky, not of sun and moon. It says that these lights function as symbols and as clocks, 1 verse 14. Ancient science was concerned with proportions of earth, air, fire, and water in these heavenly bodies. Modern science is interested in them as nuclear furnaces, sources of heat, energy, and the like. Modern science is surely closer to the mark, and nothing in Genesis 1 contradicts its observations on this point. But this chapter in the Bible is concerned with a different aspect of these heavenly bodies. Similarly, while modern science separates lizards, insects, and rodents into three different groups, Genesis 1 lumps them together as creeping things. Genesis 1, verse 24. Again, the language of appearance. The language of appearance accomplishes two things in Genesis 1. First, it gives a true description of the world as it is. It is not merely poetic to call the sun a great light, for the sun is a great light. Nor is it merely poetic to refer to creeping things because the animals thus designated do, in fact, creep on the ground. Thus, provided we do not try to press the language of Genesis 1 into some scientific mold, ancient or modern, there is no reason not to take it literally. At the same time, however, the language of visual appearance in Genesis 1 serves to establish a visual grid, a worldview. By writing in terms of visual appearance, the Bible sets up categories of visual imagery. Unfortunately, modern readers often have trouble with this. We who live in the post-Gutenberg information age are unfamiliar with visual imagery. We are word-oriented, not picture-oriented. The Bible, however, is a pre-Gutenberg information source. While it does not contain drawings, it is full of important visual descriptions and imagery. This visual imagery is one of the primary ways the Bible presents its worldview. There is nothing to indicate that Genesis 1 is merely symbolic. At the same time, however, by using the language of visual appearance, Genesis 1 sets up a worldview grid that is used later on in Scripture for symbolic purposes. For instance, Genesis 1 sets up certain categories of animals. They are as follows. Monsters, sea creatures, winged birds, cattle, beasts of the field, and creeping things. These six categories recur in Scripture. For instance, in Leviticus 11, where we find a discussion of clean and unclean animals, there are five categories. Domestic animals, cattle, fish, birds, wild animals, beasts of the field, and creeping things. The distinction between clean and unclean is symbolic and is set out in terms of Genesis 1's categories. The great monsters are also used symbolically in Scripture, often to represent the nations in revolt against God. The best-known instance of this usage are the beasts of the books of Daniel and Revelation. There is no reason to be surprised at the notion that the world and its creatures have a symbolic dimension. Romans 1 verse 20 tells us that God's invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood through what has been made. In other words, the creation reflects the character of its creator and points us to him. An example from common life will help to clarify this. You get into your automobile and turn on the radio. One station is playing music by the Rolling Stones. You twist the dial and come to another station playing music of Bach. You can tell the difference immediately. Why? Because Bach's music reflects his person and style, and the music of Mick Jagger reflects his. If you have a trained ear, when you hear a piece by Bach you've never heard before, you might say, 
I'm pretty sure that's by Bach. It sounds like Bach. Just so, the universe and everything in it reveals the character of its creator. God designed the universe to reveal himself and to instruct us. The problem we have is that sin has made us deaf and blind. We need new eyes and ears, and the scriptures can help us get them. Reading Biblically Modern literature is not written the same way as ancient literature, and this presents a problem for Bible students. George Mendenhall has written, Ancient thought is an associational, not scientific, and therefore tends to create the maximum of relationships between experience, language, and art, not the minimum which is so characteristic of modern over-specialization. Before the modern era and before Gutenberg, there were few books. The few men who wrote books wrote them very carefully. As a result, ancient writings, including the Bible, are very tightly and precisely written. Every word has its place. This fact is generally ignored by liberal scholarship, which usually assumes that any part of the Bible is a sloppy conflation of several sources. This viewpoint grew up to explain apparent contradictions and paradoxes in the text. A proper reading of any ancient text, including the Bible, would take the apparent contradictions as stimuli for deeper reflection. For example, in 1 Samuel 14, verse 18, the high priest's ephod is called the Ark of the Covenant. According to 1 Samuel 7, verse 2, however, the Ark could not have been present on this occasion. Liberal commentators assume that we have here two sources, and whoever put 1 Samuel together was so stupid that he did not even bother to make his book internally consistent. Other commentators, conservatives, explained the error in 14 verse 18 by saying that there has been a textual corruption in the transmission, and Ark should be changed to Ephod. Deeper reflection, however, shows that the Ark and Ephod correspond one to another, and there are important theological reasons why the Ephod here is called the Ark. The Ark was present with the people in the form of the Ephod. Ancient and medieval literature abounds in numerical symbolism. Large parallel structures, intricate chiastic devices, astral illusions, sweeping metaphors, typological parallels and symbolism in general. Modern literature, whether fiction or non-fiction, is almost always written in a straight line. You don't have to go back and forth in such books to unpack illusions or get hidden messages. In other words, you don't have to study such books in a literary fashion. You just read them and get the message. Ancient and medieval literature, however, must be studied. Modern American Christians have trouble understanding the Bible for other reasons as well. Not only are we unaccustomed to reading ancient literature, we are also unfamiliar with visual symbolism. The symbols of the scripture are foreign to us in a way that they were not foreign to the previous generations. When the Psalms were at the center of the church's worship, biblical symbolism was much better understood because the Psalter abounds in it. As Campbell has written, the key to the figurative and symbolic language of the Holy Writ is the book of Psalms. Also, the traditional liturgies of the church being thoroughly grounded in scripture communicated biblical symbolism. God's people were also familiar with such imagery from the architecture and decor of their churches. All this has disappeared from the modern American church, and the result is that it is much harder for us to read the Bible accurately. Happily, this situation is rapidly changing. 
we are seeing a rebirth of careful exegesis, a new appreciation for biblical philosophy of metaphor and typology, a new recognition of biblical symbolism, a new desire to take the literary structures of the Bible seriously. It is, of course, possible to jump enthusiastically into the Bible and find all kinds of symbols and allusions that sober study would discount. We moderns lack the kinds of instincts needed to be able to pick up on such things without effort. We have to read and study the Bible, immersing ourselves in its world view, and then we will be able to discern valid symbols and allusions. Even so, it is doubtful if any 20th century expositor can do a perfect job of this. There will always be room for debate and discussion over particular passages. We can, though, set out some canons or rules for proper biblical interpretation. Rules for Interpretation First of all, Biblical symbolism and imagery is not a code. The Bible does not use a symbol when a literal statement will do. Biblical symbolism, like poetry, is evocative language, used when discursive specific language is insufficient. The Bible uses evocative imagery to call up to our minds various associations which have been established by the Bible's own literary art. In other words, if John in Revelation 13 had wanted to say Nero, he would have said Nero. Instead, he said, beast. By using the symbol beast, he was not just giving a code for Nero, he was bringing to mind a whole series of biblical associations. The beasts in the garden, Adam clothed in skins of beasts, Nebuchadnezzar turned into a beast, Daniel 4. The beasts in Daniel's visions, the human beasts who rioted against Paul at Ephesus, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32, Acts 19, etc., by associating the beast with the number 666, he alluded to the dimensions of Nebuchadnezzar's idol, Daniel 3, verse 1, to Solomon's fall into sin, 1 Kings 10, verse 14, and more. Second, biblical symbols do not exist in isolation. Symbols have a meaning within a set of symbolic relations, or within a symbol of system. This means that symbols have to be interpreted within the symbolic design in which they are located, Within such a symbolic design, symbols function as a part of a network of relationships. In the Bible, the entire symbolic world is one organized and unified worldview, a worldview that actually takes its rise in the first chapters of Genesis. The symbolic meanings and associations of earth, sea, rocks, stars, plants, animals, serpents, trees, fruit, and all else are set out in these chapters. The rest of the Bible simply unpacks their meaning. Third, in coming to understand biblical symbolism, we may receive some clues from other ancient literature, but we must always have clear-cut biblical indication for any symbol or image we think we have found. We don't want to read the modern secular worldview into the Bible, but we don't want to read the corrupt worldview of ancient Near Eastern paganism into it either. In recent years, Failure to keep this rule in mind has marred many potentially useful studies of biblical symbolism and typology. Fourth, the heritage of the church in systematic theology and in the history of exegesis is always a check on wild speculation. According to Ephesians 4 verse 8, the ascended Christ has given gifts to men, and these gifts are explained in verses 11 through 12. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. 
The godly wisdom of these gifts, these men, is part of the treasure of the church, and to ignore it is to despise the gifts of the Spirit. Fifth, biblical symbolism must be interpreted in terms of biblical presuppositions and philosophy. In the early church, the skull of Alexandria became notorious for allegorical and symbolic exegesis, but their problem did not lie in the fact that they studied biblical imagery. The problem was that they were trying to squeeze biblical teachings into the categories of Platonic philosophy, and to do so, they had to interpret the Bible allegorically. The Bible has its own presuppositions and its own philosophy of type and allegory. We do not need to borrow anything from Plato. Finally, since so little work has been done in this area until recently, the student of biblical imagery must be alert to the work of other scholars. Exegesis must never be done in a vacuum. Conclusion the Bible is not written in terms of modern science or philosophy. To a great extent, the Bible is written in the pregnant language of imagery. Genesis 1 describes the creation of the world in the language of appearance, and this sets up for us a visual worldview grid. The world and its contents are not a bunch of random facts, but were created with a design and purpose. The world and all that it contains were made, in part, as pointers to God. Thus, in some sense, they symbolize God's attributes to us. Because of sin, we tend not to see this, and our worldview is askew. The Bible, however, will help us see God's world through new eyes. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.